You're listening to The Perth Property Show, Australia's only weekly property podcast by West Australian experts for West Australian listeners. Catch your latest episode every Monday at 7am. Good morning, guys. Welcome to The Perth Property Show. My name's Trent Fleskins, your host. As always, this week, we are talking to real estate agent royalty. It is Vivian Yap from Ray White. Vivian is probably the most recognizable name in West Australian real estate and actually national real estate too, leading the way in sales in the high net worth, ultra high net worth space, obviously basing herself in the Western suburbs. Today, I thought it would be a really good opportunity to get Vivian in to give us a bit of an insight into her life story, how she got to where she is at the top of the pile in real estate in WA and also get some insights into the very niche unique market of the western suburbs and and not only the western suburbs but the top end of the western suburbs. Vivian, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for inviting me. Vivian, your story is actually quite unique in contrast to a lot of agents but not unlike many as well. You didn't start as a real estate agent but what is unique is that you didn't start as a sales agent in cars or finance or you weren't a tradesman who decided that they wanted to get into property you actually had your own tertiary education as a pharmacist running your own business right yeah i certainly became pharmacist because i saw my uncle being a pharmacist i was not a very good student ultimately when i was growing up it's always been sort of ingrained in in our brain that if you're going to do well you've got to become a doctor or something in the medical industry so of course When I was going through year 11, year 12, I just knew, okay, number one, I'm not good with blood. (laughs) I I just would be hopeless. Yeah, Yeah, I would cringe and I'll just have this panic attack if I see anything to do with blood. So I thought next best thing is to do pharmacy and my uncle's a pharmacist. At the age of 16, I was a pharmacy assistant working as a cleaner, basically just cleaning the shelves and you're making coffee. I also worked as a receptionist in a medical surgery as well. What then happened is I decided, okay, let's just see what my uni results come back with. My mum and dad, they were very, very good. And as much as, of course, they would love their daughter to be a doctor, I was not good enough. So I thought, okay, I'll just apply to do pharmacy. I got in straight away. Most people would suggest a degree in pharmacy and a a career in pharmacy is actually something to be pretty proud of. I just had very high expectation of myself and definitely all my peers, all my friends, they are very, very intelligent and, you know, very, very high achievers. You know, they're lawyers, engineers, so they didn't all end up as doctors? Um, no, not all of them. <laughs> I graduated from the School of Pharmacy in Curtin University. I worked at a pharmacy in Inloo. I worked at Mount Hospital yep. as well. So I had a choice of working in hospital or retail. And I did find that retail pharmacy was a little bit more fun. And from there, I learned how to do all sorts of you know, body piercing uh, ear wow. piercing, yeah. spray tanning, makeup. It was just fun. It was just a different element in running a retail pharmacy than just being in a hospital pharmacy environment. Mm. There's a shop in, in addition to mixing drugs and selling drugs. That's right. And then I think when I was actually working as a pharmacist later on, we also had to work as a pre-registrant chemist, which means that you have to do 2,000 hours to learn everything about wow. the pharmacy or you have to then finally sit for an exam before you become a registered pharmacist as well. So from that side, I saw 
two different sides of the pharmacy business, which is retail, which means stock turn, which means you have to make a profit. Yes. Yep. You've got to pay for subscriptions. You've got to pay for wages. You've got to pay for the whole business side where it's all about net profit because if you don't make a profit, you don't pay. Well, that's interesting, yourself. isn't it? You can start to see some of those skill sets that you've learned in that business space in the pharmacy and how that is translated into the work you do today in real estate, right? There's some transferable skills there. Mm. And we didn't get paid very much. We were only getting paid about $16 an hour. Yep. And then you go, okay, how am I going to save more money? Yeah. How so, am I going to have a deposit for a house one that's day? That's right. Yep. Every single hour that I worked, I was working out, okay, how am I going to buy my own house one day? But back then, you're talking in the 90s. Things house were a lot cheaper pricing, then too. Yeah. yeah, of course. It's so cheap. You can purchase a house from 50000 to 200000 depending on the location that you're buying. So I was counting my pennies. I'm thinking, okay, if I save for a year, I could probably have a down payment for a small investment. And in each job that I did, I was calculating, okay, if I can do 12 hours in one day, that's 48 hours in four days. What can I do with my three other days? So I was locuming as a mm. pharmacist. Mm. So I Hustling. was working seven days a week, saving up enough to purchase house and eventually own my own pharmacy one day as well. So all of that was always in my mind. But at that stage, I was only 21, 22, thinking, how am I going to make it work yeah. for myself? Well, that's a lot of young people, right? A lot of young people in their early 20s right now are asking the same questions. They're just getting out of university, starting their first job and on a base salary, hoping that that job is something they're passionate about that they can do, hopefully, for the rest of their life. But asking those serious questions of, if not now, when will I be able to afford to enact the plan I've got for my financial security? Looking at their sixty, seventy, eighty thousand dollar a year salary, going, well, what are the next steps? And am I in the right career path to be able to achieve the outcomes I'm looking for as well? And obviously, you were asking those questions of yourself at that same age too. I was looking at how to invest in myself with knowledge, being like a sponge of information, listening to more successful people than I am. I then looked at different suburbs where I can also afford to buy and will those suburbs double, triple, quadruple in value in time to come. But I think I was given an amazing opportunity to also learn from a much older pharmacist who's also had a lot of experience in investing. And he believed in me. He gave me a choice of either working for him forever Yep. <laughs> Or buy into the business. And I think that's what really gave me that big opening in realizing my potential as not only just as a pharmacist, but as a manager, as a leader, as well as being able to work out what is net profit? What does it really mean? It really taught me a lot of nuggets of information that I collected over the years. So your first investment? My first investment was actually buying property. I collected enough money as a deposit to purchase, you know, smaller properties back then. But I did borrow money from the bank. And back then, the property would have doubled in value four, five years later back then. Mm. But obviously, it's not as easy today. At one stage, I owned up to 10 properties and I was still very young, but very, very nervous because there's also commitments in place. I assume that's where you got your taste for the property industry. Being a part of it as a landlord at the time, you were clearly interacting with sales agents early on in your life. Mm. What was that trigger for you to go, you know what? I've spent years training in pharmacy. I've invested into a pharmacy business. Most people would just double down in that. 
What made you go, I'm making a 180 here and I'm going to move into the real estate industry? I think I saw how different agents work as you are walking into a home open or the way they interact with you on the telephone. I felt that I could make a difference in the way they dealt with me as a prospective buyer or vendor. And I saw different sides from every agent just have different ways of dealing with the way we ask questions or the way we expect to be treated. And I just thought I was going to bring something a little bit different from that perspective because I've seen it firsthand. So that's what actually gave me that opportunity. When I sold both of my pharmacies, I decided to work as a practice manager for my husband. But I thought, I don't know if it's going to work. My husband may (laughs) divorce me, you know, because we're both so strong. And he runs a very, very successful dental surgery. And he goes, no, Vivian, you build your empire and I build mine. Let's not talk about work, which means that just keeps our life sane. Sounds like a very supportive partner. And I guess that would be a theme, you know, for me, it's the same thing. I I genuinely would not be where I am today without the love and support of my wife. I assume it'd be similar for yourself. Yeah, my husband, Johan, he's amazing. And he's the one who actually really encouraged me to do real estate. I was a little bit nervous about doing real estate, mainly because my dad never trusted any real estate agents. And every time he walks in a home open, he goes, I'll give them a fake number. <laughs> <laughs> and then um, I say, why, dad? He goes, oh, they just annoy me. They always call me. And I say, well, that's, oh, that's, you know, their, job. Yeah. that's their job to follow up, to get feedback. I said, no, don't do real estate. You know, it's not ideal. But in the end, at the end of the day, it's really up to me what I want to do. And I couldn't be staying at home or doing coffees and lunches. And, and going to the gym every single day without a purpose as well. And I didn't really want to continue working as a retail pharmacist. I was teaching at UWA. I was doing some lectures and tutoring work. And it was very fulfilling because you're giving back. At the end of the day, we just needed to keep myself busy. So my girlfriend and two of my other friends just said, go and do the REWA course. You know, yeah. if you do what, it, what I'll you give to you a house yeah. to sell. I said, really? You'll give me a house to sell? I said, that's good. I get a job straight away. And within three weeks, I enrolled. It was a very easy course because Some would say then, too easy. Yeah. And I think it was very easy for anyone who's got common sense and good communication skills. Anyone can do it, I feel. Mm. Within about a month after that, you submit your assignments and you get registered. And that's when I rang my friend and said, you promised me to give me this house to sell. Can I do it? And go, yeah, go for it. It was in Woodlands. And I used to hang out at his house every Sunday because immediately after church, we just normally just have lunch and we're always staying there. And I know that house so well. So ultimately, it was just a no-brainer. I just said, I can do this. It was second nature. Yeah. Yeah. And I got a listing. The dad got registered. And I thought about how to prepare the house for sale. And I thought about a process a method of sale and back then it was all about offers campaign because the market was quite uncertain back in 2012 and that's really how it all got started I sold the property within three weeks although the local agent did say the property was worth 820,000 I did sell the property for 925,000 and I thought wow this is better than being paid $20 an hour (laughs) and I thought wow this is really good but of course there's a lot of work involved it wasn't a one-hour job. That's how it all started. And the next-door neighbour said, you got that price? I want to sell my house too. I said, great, <laughs> I get two houses to sell, one after another. And then within a week after that, I sold the next-door neighbour's home. 
And then within another month after that, I also was asked to appraise another home, also in Woodlands. I kind of became the Woodlands specialist and I thought, oh, Just by accident. oh my gosh, yeah. this is all by absolute accident. And from there, it, it just became better and better in terms of my reputation in just making sure that we follow through with all inquiries and making sure that we also got the best, best offer for each vendor. And we ended up setting a record price back then. Well, I'm sure records are still being broken today, Vivian. You started in Woodlands, as you said. It sounds like it was genuinely by accident that you started in that suburb. And that leads me to ask the question, how does a novice sales agent in Woodlands end up moving to the western suburbs, a very discerning, fickle market that like what they like and they like who they know? How do you end up making that transition to what is today essentially the top of the pile in the hardest market to get into in the first place? I went to school in Hollywood High School, which is in Netherlands. So all my friends do live in the Western suburbs and it certainly made sense for me to do some homework. And I looked at Dalkeith, I looked at Netherlands, I looked at Claymore, I looked at Cottesloe and I didn't want to be cocooned into one suburb only because people move around. Mm. And for the families who move around, they're also moving from one suburb to another that's closer to good schools university close proximity to either the river or the beach so after talking to a lot of friends and talking to a lot of real estate agents i looked at who's very successful at that time and who was it willie porteous <laughs> <laughs> he's got a, and look, he it's sold an, me it's a name that is connected to ultra high value properties in perth and has been for 20 years hasn't that's it? right and he did ask me if i wanted to work for him but i said i'd like to actually do something that is also going to benefit me later on. 2012 is when you said you sold your first home and it would surprise a lot of people to know that in only 11 years you've gone from that accidental first sale in Woodlands to now being the go-to real estate agent for ultra high net worth buyers and therefore sellers in Perth's western suburbs. Does a lot of it come down to the fact you positioned yourself that way? Does a lot of it come down to the fact you have a grasp of five languages, including obviously the key one Mandarin? Or is it all by chance? If you can pinpoint a couple of factors to achieving that mantle of being well-known in Western Australia and to be frank, the country now as one of the highest grossing real estate agents across the board, what would those things be? I think it's a combination of multiple things. It's not one thing that happened. And I think, number one, I was very lucky at the time. I did have the support of everyone around me wanting to see me succeed. And being a female, being an Asian, I look different anyway. So ultimately, I was using the fact that I am different. I am unique. Being new to the western suburbs as well is also a good thing. There's a lot of families who have friends and family who are real estate agents that they've known for years and years or relatives who've served the family for years and years. I was basically coming into the picture saying, I am new to the industry. I'm knowledgeable though. I also understand what it means to be very professional. Hardworking. Hardworking. You know, if it means that I've got to work beyond 7 o'clock, 8 o'clock, 9 o'clock, 10 o'clock, midnight, 1 o'clock, I will work. And if the clients are from overseas, different time zones, I'll wait until they get hold of the time to speak to me. And I think hard work will always outshine anybody. And we're smart and intelligent and everybody else in the Western suburbs are the same. 
we all have our strengths and weaknesses and I think you just need to know how to work on your strengths to be different. You speak about being Asian as uh, sounds like something of a hamstring for you coming into the industry and that you were slightly different but I would suggest it's possibly one of your competitive advantages and that a sizable percentage of the people transacting in this market these days are from an Asian background. Surely they look at you and go, I can relate to her, she can relate to me, I can trust her. I mean, not all of them are going to contact me, but I do feel that there is a good advantage there. And even if they're not buying the property, they will actually come and say hello. And I just had something that just happened about three weeks ago. I was communicating with an Asian buyer and they just wanted advice. And that's all I did, provide them with an advice. They did say to me, that property that you are selling, we we can't afford. I said, no problem, let me help you with some information. I'll, I'll send you some options. And on the day of the auction, all they did was come in and say hello. That's mm. all they came to do with no intention to buy. As they walked in, they loved the property. I could see the sparkle in the eye and I thought, wow, this is fantastic. So I started speaking to her. She goes, I don't want to buy this property, but I really love it. I said, great, would you register your interest? (laughs) And before you know it, not only she registered, she said, I'm going to put up my hand and bid and help you. I thought, when you help me, you have to buy it, you know. (laughs) She goes, yeah, (laughs) I know, but I really love it. But I know exactly where I can stop. So that's really how it all happened. And of course, her mother-in-law was standing beside her, but I overheard a conversation saying, I'm going to help you buy this property. Every dollar you can't afford, I'm going to help you. And I thought, wow, that is a power of connecting with families who you're not expecting them to buy, but be really nice to them and just be constantly providing them with good information and good options out there. And they'll come and say hello. And that resulted in a really good outcome for all parties. Not only they were the ultimate buyer for the property, but they were also the nicest buyers out there too and paid a record price as well. Well, I think the theme there is you never know where your next buyer is going to come from and never judge a book by its cover because there could always be, as you said, that serendipitous moment that connects a buyer with a house. And as you said, it's that hard work is what sets most agents apart, I think. Mm. There needs to be a certain level of intelligence for sure, but more importantly, a higher level of integrity and an even higher level of hard work. Mm. And if you've got that formula, in addition to a knowledge of what you're actually selling in the market you're selling in, there is no reason any agent shouldn't be successful at some level along the curve. Let's move into talking about the market that you serve, right? Mm. And and the story over the last four or five years. I always say the smart money moves first. And for me, the start of this upswing in the Perth market wasn't just around COVID. It was actually in Cottesloe in 2017 where I started to see property prices start to move positively in that area. Can you give us a little bit of a story of how the market has progressed under your watch in the last six years in the Western suburbs with regards to the dynamic between buyers and sellers? What was it like back in 2017 and how has it progressed through COVID into today? Back in 2017, I think WA especially in the Western suburbs, was still very, very undervalued. Since COVID, we have really been put on the map. And I do feel that based on how WA is perceived, it is now a safe haven 
Cottesloe, of course, has always done very, very well, but the surrounding suburbs are also starting to take suit. Like a ripple effect, do you think? That's right. And of course, you know, whatever happens in the iconic suburbs of Cottesloe or Peppermint Grove, they're always comparing us with the eastern states, but we're still very, very cheap comparatively. Well, we're less than half. I mean, you think about that $10 million property in Peppermint Grove, it's $40 million in Turak. And it's just so cheap in the eyes of the buyers. If they have experience purchasing in Sydney or they are also coming from a different country, let's say if they've purchased in New York or they purchase in London and they might live in Hong Kong or Beijing. When we're talking to different buyers who have a different lifestyle where they have children who have encourage you know mum and dad to move over to different states or different countries depending on what uni they're going to those are the sort of buyers that we're seeing and sometimes with the current market WA seems to be encouraging a lot of good executives to, to come over right now with the job being offered not only they're being paid a lot higher than back in 2017, we are now seeing a lot more buyers at the moment than there are properties for sale. And that's also driving the value in WA. That's right interesting when you speak about the amount of buyers because I know that we're talking here about properties that are not just 600000 or a million dollars. We're talking three, four, five, ten million dollars when I'm talking to Vivian Yap. Not everyone has three, four, five, ten million dollars. And when we get up right up above that five million dollar mark, it's not likely that they're going to be more than a couple of people with that money looking at a property at that point in time. When I talk to agents at the median house price, they tell me there's 15 offers on the table in nearly every property. There's 40 people walking through the door. What's a good dynamic for you in terms of the number of people walking through the door inquiring and the number of offers you have. If you had to think, well, geez, that property was hot. What does that look like in terms of those numbers for you at those price points? We would see anywhere from three to six offers for a property in that price range. And we will get multiple inquiries anywhere from 20 to about 50 inquiries in a fortnight, which is still a lot at the Mm. moment. But a lot of the inquiries don't result into an actual offer or an actual viewing. They are very, very time poor. So we find that they're communicating with us via telephone first, and then they will go through the 3D tour. The 3D tour is extremely useful, especially for people coming from over east. Is that a non-negotiable, you think, these days in selling property at that price point? Yes, absolutely. And I think the video that we do also gives that feeling whether or not they want to live in that house. Is that the style of the house that people are wanting to move into? How many people are buying sight unseen or, or video only? Not as many as I was experiencing before, just after COVID because of the travel restrictions. That was the norm, obviously. That was the norm. But I am still getting anywhere from two to three a year, which is still pretty good. But they normally send their relatives to be the eyes and ears for Someone who's already living here. Absolutely. You mentioned auctions before. Now, auctions for me are a selling strategy that only works when a property is going to sell itself. Are you seeing many of those auctions actually eventuate at the moment? Are you suggesting to many of your clients that an auction would be the appropriate way to go? No, not necessarily. It depends on the property. It depends on the owner. And sometimes I've already got a buyer sitting in my back pocket and mm. I will just say, there's no need to do that. We will sell it right now. Mm. And I've just done that only four weeks ago. I had a buyer. I spoke to my owner. There's really no need to run a campaign. Let's just do it because we will sell it today for $500,000 more. And that is how I expect 
like the market's running in the western suburbs right now and probably more to the point most of the time is that because the price point is not very accessible to most people because it's quite a small community of people who can buy a property at this price point, most of the agents will know who those buyers could be at a certain time. And it nearly becomes less of a marketing service and more of a matchmaking service. Do you find yourself sometimes just becoming a matchmaker between buyer and property rather than a marketer putting it out to a broad market waiting for phone calls? I mean, you can matchmake, but the thing is you might have 10 buyers to matchmake. (laughs) And you want to make sure... You are matchmaking the right bar with the right price so you're not underselling the property as well. And if you've got all these buyers, you've got to question yourself, are you doing the right thing? Are you underselling it when the market is so hot? Is that a reality for you right now? Do you often or most of the time feel like there are more buyers than properties available? Absolutely. There are definitely a lot more buyers right now than there are properties available for sale. And you just always have to ask the question, if you do have a lot more buyers out there, how will you deliver the best result for your seller? And Mm -hmm. always ask that question and the answer will come because that buyer may find fault with a section of the house. But you might have one or three other buyers all totally in love and these are the top three that you're going to say, look, if everybody thinks that property is worth 3.5, is there any chance you can get 3.8 or 3.9 or just under 4 million for Mm -hmm. that property? And if you've got three or four buyers fighting for it, they might be going up in increments of 100,000 each. Every person that goes up in 100,000 increments can land half a million dollars into the pocket of the seller. It's all money for the seller, right? And that's your job is to be able to extract the most value you can for that property. And that comes to the priorities of the seller, right? Sometimes it's not price. Sometimes it's time. Often I would suggest there would be times where the seller has got a property they've purchased, they need to move. And that brings me to that next question of mobility. Often we're talking in the industry right now about accessibility, affordability. A lot of people can't afford that house at $500,000 because the interest rates have gone up and they can't get that loan anymore. It's a tough position for people. When you start to get to the top of the market, it's less about their ability to afford property. It's about their ability to actually just purchase property they want to move out of. So that mobility issue becomes a real factor. You've got a lady who's 80 years old, who's been living in Dalkeith for 40 years. She's ready to make a move to another property, but she just cannot lock down a purchase somewhere either because there's nothing available or what is available is being purchased much more aggressively by 10 other people on the market that day. Do you find that a big issue for you right now is you're doing a lot of appraisals, but many people who are wanting to sell, ready to sell, just can't because they have nowhere to move? I am experiencing that right now, which is where we're doing a lot more buy work as well. We are hunting for properties for them. We're not encouraging them to move out immediately, but we're giving them options as well. So sometimes they might not need to have a 30-day settlement or a 60-day settlement. It might be a longer settlement, so it just gives them time to find something. Or we will organize a rent back Mm. as well. And if we've got a buyer who's ready to do that, then that will be the ultimate marriage between the buyer and the seller. That's a piece of gold right there, Vivian. And I think we've been speaking about this on the podcast with Lachlan Delahunty a couple of weeks ago, is that it's not always about price for sellers. Sometimes they need that flexibility. Mm-hmm. They would rather have the extended settlement because they have nowhere to move right now. They'd rather mm-hmm. have the option to rent back because they want the certainty they won't be homeless, ironically, mm-hmm. after selling a $4 million house, for example, because they haven't got somewhere to move to, right? So your message to buyers at this price point would be, don't just come to me with price, come to me with terms that suit my seller? The terms and conditions just need to be rather compliant to what the seller wants in order for you to successfully buy that property. And that's the reason having a lot more buyers today gives us that flexibility to negotiate with 
each different vendor as well. You've got a few property developers in your phone book, people that have been looking to develop over the last few years. We're very aware that especially in the apartment market and to some extent the townhouse market, it's become very hard for developments to stack up given costs have increased so heavily. The only part of Western Australia right now where it is remotely stacking up is the Western suburbs. So I assume it's not as acute as it is across the rest of Perth. But do you have a number of developments you're aware of that are sitting there on ice right now where you have buyers for them, but you just can't get the developer to get moving because of the price differential? We have a few like that, but what we're finding also is all about time. And then the time will probably just correct the the pricing as well. Mm. It's not as crazy as it was, I would say a good six to eight months ago, things are actually calming down. That's a positive. Positive. I think for the Western suburbs where that real need for downsizing and infill, which is already hard enough to achieve given the political nature of the area, is prevalent. We really need to be continuing to provide options. Obviously, we just had the Chellingworth development approved last week. That's obviously quite political. It'll provide options for downsizers in the area. It'll be ironic that the same people that were against the development are probably going to buy into the development as well. We've got the Grove that's gone up with Blackburn. There's a lot of stuff in North Romantle that's come through. Some developments in Cottesley, obviously, on Marine Parade, the OBH getting developed too. So there's going to be those options for those higher density complexes coming through. Furthermore, we've seen a lot of the townhouse R60 development start to actually get off the ground in Stirling Highway, Netherlands area. Do you see that product continuing to have demand as the local market starts to appreciate it? There will always be demand because, number one, there's not much land available in the western suburbs. For people who do want to move into the area, it's also the affordability issue. For example, if you're purchasing a property in Netherlands, Dalkey, Claremont, the land parcel may be anywhere from 809 square metres to 1,012 square metres. And there's a big cost factor in building and renovating on such a big mm. block of land as well. The holding costs as well. Holding cost and then cost of repayments all play a part into the disposable income as well. People are getting busier and busier these days and they love to travel having a smaller block is not a bad idea and it all comes down to what each family is wanting to achieve is it an apartment style living and some of them may even try before they buy so there will be people buying and then renting it out to people who will try before they buy and we're seeing that Mm. I don't think it's a bad thing. It's personal for each family. Yeah, it seems like it is much more personalised, the purchasing experience in the western suburbs. Let's talk about the east coast. Ironically, despite the fact that prices over in Sydney are more than double those in Perth, when you rank yourself even yap across the rest of the country, you're actually still sitting up there in the top two in the whole country as a real estate agent in the Ray White space. I think that's phenomenal, obviously, what you're achieving. If we can then relate that again to the expectations of buyers from the East Coast. They're looking at a property in Perth that might be $3 million. They're paying six, seven, eight for that in Sydney. How do the conversations work over there? Do they look at us and go, that's ridiculously cheap. I'm not very price sensitive. If it's three mil, four mil, I don't care. I'll have that one, please, I'm moving across. Or are they still very discernible, fickle, buyers because to get to that price point you've got to be good with money most of the time yeah they're very astute buyers and we're talking to a few buyers at the moment and before they buy they will travel and it all comes down to value for them and looking at the positive factor of potential growth we've just got so much underlying potential in WA that's, that's what never, they're seeing absolutely I also own Raybite projects a newsletter we sent out we were just testing to see how many people will open 
that newsletter when we have heading to say, will you invest in WA? We had a 47% interest, which is huge. Like the open rate, 47% open rate. of people that receive the email open the email. That's right. Jeez. And if we did the same thing years ago, I'd say you might be lucky to get a 2 or 3% hit rate. Mm. But things have significantly changed and they have seen how WA has performed. They're looking at our state being the driver of the economy, despite the change in the increasing interest rate, that hasn't slowed people down in buying houses. They're more cautious though. I'm not finding an immediate offer to be written up within five minutes of them walking through the house. They will take seven, 14 days to think about it. Mm. And I think we just need to give them time to digest what they want to do. So your advice would be to anyone selling in the Western suburbs, especially at those high net worth prices, don't just market to people in Perth, market nationally. They must be marketed to people with a reason to buy here. When I talk about a reason to buy here, there must be either family here or it must be a reason for them to be close to Asia or they're setting up a company in WA or a branch over here or they're changing jobs. Definitely do not just cocoon yourself in just the WA market and collaborate with different agencies overseas, interstate. And the fact that we do have several thousand offices that we work with and Ray White alone over a thousand plus offices locally, nationally, internationally, that just gives us the upper hand. You're harnessing that. When we think about interest rates, we've spoken about that a couple of the times. Obviously, that really affects affordability for people with loans. At this price point, you'd expect that a lot of buyers aren't affected by interest rates because they're buying cash. They don't have loans they're taking out. They might even be above the age of where they can even get a loan. Interest rates rising, turn deposits increasing, return on cash starting to increase for the first time in a decade. Has it actually been a positive at some price points that interest rates have been rising? Has that helped people have more confidence in cash to buy these properties or has it actually worked the other way in a fear factor? Not necessarily. I do feel there is a slight fear factor there. Ultimately, even if the buyer does not need to borrow money, there's also the opportunity cost that's involved. Even if they can buy a house with cash, their business may be the one that's impacted or it might be the business that's borrowing money. Mm. So it is an all-round effect. As much as you like to think there's no effect, there's always an underlying effect. And I think it's the way we communicate to them. People buy a property because they need to buy and we work on residential properties. So they sometimes think with emotion, mm, not with just yield. They walk in, they love it, they want it, they want it now. And that's what we work on. Yeah, unfortunately, and it's the same thing with myself. I, there's absolutely zero emotion in what I do on a daily basis at work. The second I look at a property for myself personally to live in, you can't help but get emotional, can you, Vivian? Absolutely. And I think we all want to work on the emotional factor to win them over as a prospective buyer or is there anything we can provide a solution to them if that house is not 100% perfect? Vivian, forecast for the next couple of years. I assume it's positive, but I'd like to know why. Why do you think the western suburbs, and more specifically the high net worth, ultra high net worth price points are looking good over the next couple of years. I do see there's such good value in the western suburbs. We're talking about land parcels of 1,012 square metres. When you're comparing with the other states, we are still the cheapest in the whole of Australia. We shouldn't be, should we? It shouldn't be. And it's about 
time that we really get our skates on and a lot of people are wondering when is a good time to buy and when's a good time to sell. There's never really a good time when you talk about it. It really comes down to the next chapter in their life. Is it time for them to move out of their current home because they can also buy in the current market, when you buy and sell in the same market, it's not going to affect them. When we're talking about people coming from the eastern states investing in WA, that's a different matter. And you also don't want to lose those opportunities if the stock level is so, so low at this moment in time. Who can tell what the market will be? We don't know what will happen. And look what happened with COVID. Like We never expected that to happen. We were all nervous at that time, but now we're sitting pretty. Yeah. Very, very, very exciting market. You're right. The fundamentals of that low stock, whether you're at $300,000 or $30 million, is always going to be, I think, the driving force. As long as you have an increasing population, there will be a spectrum of people at all different price points, mm-hmm. and the interest will continue to rise when our economy does so well from those people who are sensitive to it, right? And, they, and we talk about business owners, and not just local business owners, but those from across the world. Mm-hmm. I agree with you. I think those are the factors that continue to drive interest in that high net worth market. And I'm expecting that we're going to see some record prices continue to be broken again and broken again in that space over the next few years. And I'm sure you'll be a big proponent of being part of that, Mm. Vivian. Yeah. So thank you very much for your time today. It's been an insightful chat to learn from probably the most successful agent in the last five years in Western Australia. I look forward to seeing what you're achieving in the next five years. Thank you. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Perth Property Show. If you've only just joined the conversation, you can catch up by heading over to our website, perthpropertyshow.com.au, subscribing to the podcast or joining our Facebook page. Don't forget to tune in next Monday at 7am for more expert insights, local analysis and suburb spotlights. Happy hunting!